0: just me and Josh, just the cool kids now. All right, everybody, welcome to the Black Hills Information Security Webcast. If this is your first time on one of our webcasts, we do have people in the back end that are here to help answer your questions. Inside the GoToWebinar, you can always ask a question there, but please, if you can, ask that question inside Discord, because there are thousands of you, and there are four of us that can actually answer a technical question. The other two of us are like, we can tell you what the Discord is. We can tell you where the YouTube channel is and things like that. But there are only a few technical people here. So if there is a question that we think we'll ask Joff to clear up any, maybe things that you don't understand, we'll wait till the end. Or if it seems like something we really need to talk about now, we can interrupt Joff at any time. But other than that, thanks for being here. If you ever need a uh, red team, pen test, thread hunt, you know where to find us. Joff, it's all yours. Good luck.
1: Okay. Let's do this thing. All right. Welcome, everybody. You have transition now from pre-show banter into showtime. So here we are talking about shellcode execution with Golang. And I put this together out of, it's really a subset of my class that I just talked about, which is Enterprise Attacker Emulation and C2 Implant Development. And I wanted to talk about the Golang section of the class as soon as I find where my PowerPoint app is. So let's go with it. First of all, about myself, some of you may have encountered me at cons and or online or in various classes. I am a developer researcher pentester with Black Hills Information Security. I was, I am a former SANS certified instructor of SEC 5s M3. That is the Python class that SANS teaches. Also, co-host Security Weekly podcast. And that's probably all you need to know about me. And I thought the little graphic was kind of fun. I think I used one of Google's tools. I was like, Oh, look, it does this reverse image negative thing. That's cool. So I used it anyway. Okay. What is Golang? There's, first of all, no possible way that I can teach you everything about Golang in a one-hour webcast. So I want to make sure we set expectations here. This is not a Golang programming class. It's impossible for me to do that, right? But I can show you a few tips and tricks about Golang and shellcode right now if you imagine to yourself and you may have programmed in some of these languages if you were to take the c programming language c plus perhaps java and you kind of put them all in a bowl and you mixed them up you got rid of some of their suboptimal features one of the big suboptimal features that you would have got rid of is the fact that that at least two out of three of those languages have no garbage collection which means it doesn't clean up after itself to cl- to actually free up memory. You adopted some similar syntax to these languages, right? And you sprinkle in a little bit of Python intuitiveness on top, because I really do think that Golang is fairly intuitive. Add in very high performance concurrency, concurrency in an optimized compiler, where you pretty much Golang, right? Now, Golang is can be characterized, right, as an expressive, concise, clean, efficient, flexible, modular, and high-performance language. That's a lot of adjectives, right? In short, what it comes down to is when Google was examining the landscape of programming languages for some of the projects that they had in front of them, they didn't really like what they were seeing, and they actually had the need and the resources available to them to build their own programming language, and they really built it with that original knowledge of C and C++ in mind, the original power of that, and drove that forward into sort of a more modernized version of C and C++. At least that's my read on the language. In Golang, programs are assembled into packages. Any function in a package in Golang is exported out to another package only if it starts with a capital letter. If the, if the function name starts with a lowercase letter, then that's considered a function that stays local to that particular package. So I'm just going to give you kind of a little bit of a high level about some of the aspects of Go. Unlike other languages, variable types come after variable names in the code. And that one may throw you a little bit when you first look at Golang. You're like, what do you mean this is an integer? I can't see the sort of int in front of the variable name because it's the other way around. The other fascinating little aspect of Go is that function return values can actually be named at the top of a function in Go rather than just returning them at the bottom of the function, sort of bizarre thing. So some things are a little bit backwards in Go from your traditional view of languages. So you can have such thing as a naked return in Golang, for example. Another feature of Go that I really, really liked Is that variables can be defined and and initialized in Go and auto typed essentially using this short assignment syntax. And the short assignment syntax just has a colon in front of the equals symbol. So if you say something like k colon equals three, then Golang will auto type that as an integer variable versus typing in var k int equals three, which is a more formal declaration of an integer variable in go now notice how the type is after the variable name in that declaration so it's kind of bizarre right you cannot declare constants in the var k int equals syntax but you can say const k equals three right so that's okay other interesting thing about Go is, is there's only one kind of loop. So everything about Go, as they designed it, they seem to want to optimize what they were doing with the language. So in other languages, we're all always familiar with this idea of having a while loop, and a while loop does a conditional test, and the conditional test is either true or false, depending on whether the loop keeps looping or whether it actually you know, exits from the loop. In Go, it's just a for loop right? They combined all of the syntax of loops into one single kind of loop. And it kind of makes sense because a loop is a loop, right? A loop is something that always will continually execute the same statements over over and over and over and over and over. And if you have a condition to exit from a loop, well, you would probably use a break statement and an if statement inside of that loop, okay? Another fun thing about Go is that the Python, like Python, an underscore in Golang as a variable name becomes a placeholder. It becomes a throwaway variable, something that you can use if you don't want to store the result of something. And we'll see how that works in some of our code here. Now, in terms of offensive use, red teaming kind of use, you wanna use C sharp or you wanna use Go. Well, it's an interesting kind of question. You're like, oh my God, C-Sharp is kind of sexy. It does lots of interesting things. But unlike Go, C-Sharp is not truly a compiled language. Everything with C-Sharp in the Microsoft world compiles down into a bytecode. It compiles down into the Microsoft intermediate language, right? often known as MSIL. That is then consumed by the common language runtime. And what that means is that anything with C-sharp, once you compile that down into a DLL assembly or an assembly that is an exe, you can reverse it. You can use things like just decompile or dot .peak and reconstruct the source code. And so for forensicators that come across a piece of malware in C-sharp, unless that malware has been properly obfuscated and there are projects to do that, it's going to be fairly trivial to reconstruct the source and be able to see what is going on. Go on the other hand has a true compiler. When you compile Golang, the source code is turned into native machine assembly code. So if you're on the windows side of the, ha- uh, side of the house, that's going to turn it into a PECOF portable executable common object file format binary executable or a PECOF DLL. Right, It's not going to turn into this intermediate language like C-sharp. Once installed, Golang gives you a go command. It's meant to be very, very efficient from the command line. So if you're in PowerShell and you need to build a go project, you can say go build and maybe some source code, stuff.go in the current directory. It will compile it and it will produce an executable of the same directory name that you're in, it treats it as a package, right? Or go run stuff.go will compile it and then execute it. If you need a brand new package in go, a dependency, you can use go get and a package name, which is a GitHub reference many times, and it will go out and it'll use git and it will grab that package and bring it in for you and put it in the go home directory and you will be able to then use that package as part of your Go project, right? And I'm laughing about that comment. Jeff said, forensicators. Yes, I totally did say forensicators, all right? Now, when you're compiling with Go, you can reduce the binary size by about 30% by stripping out the symbols and debugging information, okay? So you can use the LD flags, dash W-S, that will strip the debugging information and the symbols, and In the linking phase, and it will reduce the ultimate binary size. And sometimes that can be an issue because Go binaries can be fairly sizable. Golang is really particular when it comes to type safety. It is a strongly typed language, it really enforces things when you're writing in Go. It's very specific on the source code syntax, right? Well, us offensive information security people, we really don't like seatbelts on things. We'd rather just rip away the seatbelt and make the language do what we want it to do. And sometimes that can be a little bit of a resistance to us working with Golang. Now let's talk about shellcode briefly. I'm ramping you up for an easy introduction before we get to the actual source code part. Shellcode, just to be exacting here, it's machine code native to the architecture of the target system, right? It's often delivered as a smaller first stage payload designed to fetch some sort of second stage. And we, in the pen testing industry in particular, we often use shellcode to establish some form of command and control channel so that we can actually take control of that target or that victim system that we're going after, Now, the single first stage of a shellcode is often very deliberately small, And that's historically so we can use it as a payload for remotely exploitable vulnerabilities. There are less and less these days, remote network (laughs) exploitable vulnerabilities. And so size limitation is less of a concern if we're doing direct execution via social engineering or something like that, right? The other thing about shellcode is it's always position independent code. It means it doesn't matter where we put it in memory, it will execute, it will not have absolute addressing dependencies when we put shellcode in memory. Sources of shellcode. We always tend to go to Metasploit for this because Metasploit is a rich source of shellcode that we can use for various red teaming operations, various offensive and pen testing operations. So MSF Venom in particular, has both executable and transform formats in the output of, of shellcode that we can produce. And this is actually an interesting point about Metasploit's MSF Venom. So executable, you can use things like Xe, Xe only, Xe small, Xe service, DLL, ELF, and so on to get executable output from Metasploit. One of the interesting challenges with that is because Metasploit is a very public project, all of the output of any of these things is very, very quickly going to get caught by the defense industry. They've all studied this stuff. They've got signatures against just about everything. And it's it's going to be very hard to use some of those executable formats with the output of, of Metasploit. The transform formats... C, C C-sharp, Java, Perl, Python, Ruby, RAW, etc. They're more interesting because what you can do is take the shellcode output from the MSF Venom project and embed that output into other pieces of code that you can then use to execute shellcode. And that's the impetus for today's webcast. Okay, The RAW format in particular means actual RAW machine code. It means code that would that if you disassemble it with something like NDISASM on the Linux, in the Linux world, you will see machine code opcodes. You will see the actual assembly code of the machine code itself. Now, zooming in on Windows for a minute, and, and this one is Windows-focused because, well, that's still you know 99% of the target surface for most of our pen tests, right? If we execute sh- shellcode on Windows, The basic sequence of execution really involves this, right? We need to allocate memory that will be marked as executable. So in the same process, that could be virtual alloc or heap alloc. We need to, in another process, that might be virtual alloc EX, for example, right? We need to copy the shell code that we've generated into that allocated memory. So we can use RTL move mem or RTL copy mem. This is kernel 32 Microsoft foundational C function calls here we could use write process memory if it were a remote process. And then we need to create a thread that points to the starting address of that memory or directly execute that that machine code if that is possible. So things like create thread or create remote thread are two examples of where we could create a thread in a Windows process, be it local or remote, To execute some machine code that we copy into memory. Now in Golang, sometimes we need to escape the type safety that is put in front of us. And there is a package called unsafe, which contains operations that step around the type safety of Go in order to do things that are literally considered unsafe. And one thing that is Commonly done and literally considered as unsafe is to have a pointer to an arbitrary type in memory. This is not something that Golang in its native format is going to allow you to do. But in the unsafe package, you can declare a memory pointer that points to some structure in memory. And we will need to use this idea for shellcode execution. The other idea that we're going to need to use in Golang for shellcode execution is the syscall package. The Syscall package is now, over time, now dividing up into various platform-dependent packages because originally it was included in the entire in the entire Syscall package, and it was it became very unwieldy, right? And there's a a screenshot here on this slide that says this is deprecated. The package is locked down. Callers should use the corresponding package in the GoLang.org x slash sys repository, those are really the vendor dependencies or the operating system-specific sys packages that are particular to that platform. In the case of Windows, there is a golang.org x sys Windows package that we can use. So the golang.org x sys Windows package contains an interface to the low level operating system primitives. And to get shellcode into memory, we are going to have to do this, right? The operating system details will vary depending on the underlying system, right? And you can even use GoDoc because it is a self-documenting language to display operating system specific documentation on the, the Windows package, right? Now, I wanna dive in for a minute I can. Well, I'll tell you just honestly what I did to learn how to deliver shellcode into memory with GoLang is I went and read the source code. I literally downloaded GoLang from from the GoLang GitHub repository and dove in and started reading through the source code of various low-level operating system things that I know that I needed. it. Right. One of these is called newproc. And what NewProc does is it returns a pointer for accessing a named function call in a DLL. And we are going to want to use function calls in the kernel32 DLL. Another function that we're going to want to use is this thing called call. And what call does is it actually creates a function call to a specific function name that we can name in the parameters by address to actually essentially call that function that we're talking about in that DLL. And we're gonna have to use this idea as well. Now in XSYS windows, there's also some predefined kernel 32 function calls that have been set up for us. Not all of the ones that we're going to need are predefined. Only some of them are predefined, but the ones that are predefined, we can actually go ahead and leverage. One of those is the, virtual alloc function. And this is Golang source that you're looking up, looking here on the slide. So virtual alloc, it takes the address pointer, a size, allocation type, protect. All of those parameters there are actually well documented on MSDN for the kernel 32 virtual alloc function call that's been part of the Microsoft foundational classes for years. And we can use this this one directly from the Golang X syswindows package, okay? Now, another thing I wanted to do is look a little bit deeper into what the syscall function does in Golang, because I wanted to see if we could use it for a shellcode execution method directly. So I went and dove into the internals of, of Golang in the source, and I found the actual syscall underscore syscall function in the source and looked at exactly what it was doing. And this is using something called CGO, which is essentially linking in some C language as part of the Golang compilation process here. And it's actually important to know that because as we get into the source code for some of the shellcode execution, you'll see why that's important. So what we're doing here in the syscall is We're going ahead and locking the thread, locking the thread of execution here. Then we're building up a C structure with the function name we want to call, with the arguments that we want to call, with a pointer to the arguments, a pointer to the function itself. And then we make the actual function call directly using the standard call conventions out of Go, right? This is the C Go call function that's listed here now that's there because we're actually making a call essentially to a memory address that contains machine code and that was actually a universe uh, a useful sorry revelation to me because it means that we can potentially use syscall underscore syscall to execute shellcode directly because shellcode after all is just machine code that we put into memory. So to call functions out of kernel32.dll, we have to perform a DLL load, first of all of kernel32 using the lazy load method, define a function call using new proc, and then call that function itself using this call method. The return values from that kernel32 function call are gonna be a primary return value, a secondary return value if it exists, and often it does not, and then the Windows error return value. And if you use error.error, you'll actually get the text error message from the Windows kernel32 foundational class there that'll give you back the actual error that occurred. All right, all that's good and it's all background knowledge, but what if we need to actually get our shellcode into our Golang source. Well, we could use MSF Venom, go ahead and produce Windows slash x64 slash exec here, a brief shellcode that runs a calculator because, you know, you got to run a calculator, right? And when we do this, I'm I'm always using calculators, by the way, because calculators pop and they're very visual and it's a nice way to do shellcode, right? And it's funny, some of my virtual machines actually end up degenerating my development machines to the point where I boot them up and they just start popping calculators. And usually that's the time to redo the development machine because I've used it for some sort of persistent or I've used it for some other experiment in the registry or in memory somewhere. And, and the thing is hopelessly shredded because I'll forget what I use it for. And I got to start again. But anyway, if you generate the shell code with C sharp as the transform format, you will get a comma separated byte array which is actually compatible with golang source and so we can cut and paste that byte array into the the source code of our golang shellcode execution project so using those all those ideas to date this is a golang method for executing shellcode directly using syscall okay and syscall is something that will execute something in memory. I'm just hunting around for my pointer because I want to see if I can highlight a couple of things here. Hold on a second. I'm going to plug in my USB finger. All right, hopefully this works. All right, so yeah, I've got my little laser pointer. So you can see up here we're we're loading kernel32 as a lazy DLL load, and then we're creating a function called RTLMoveMemory and setting that to the result of using the kernel32 handle dot new proc RTL move memory. In other words, we are finding the move memory address so that we can then use it. Subsequently, we now use the Windows, out of the Windows package, virtual alloc method to allocate memory for the, to contain the shellcode. The shellcode's being passed in as a parameter to this method, okay? And I'm using the flags that you would see in any shellcode execution mechanism with a slight twist here. I'm using windows.mem commit, and that's MSDN documented. You can look that up. Piping to Windows mem reserve, that reserves the memory. And I'm allocating this memory as read write. Notice I didn't allocate it as execute for a minute. Now I check the error. You know, if the error is not nil out of the return value of virtual alloc, you know, go ahead and panic and throw the error. The panic method in Go is an immediate exit from any Go program. So that just panics and prints out that we have some error here. Now I'm using RTL move memory. And notice with this pointer, I have to use dot call that actually calls that address, that syscall to move the shellcode into the memory address that I've allocated. Now I used unsafe dot pointer here because this is indeed a requirement of the syscall at the operating system layer. It's a requirement of the function that this be a pointer that is not type safe, okay? It's not a Golang type safe pointer. And then I've used the length of the shellcode, right? So I'm copying the shellcode into memory here. Now I do an interesting thing here. I change the protections on the memory segment to page execute read write that should say execute there it is (laughs) i missed the execute part so what that means is i'm now changing it to the point where i can execute the shell code now i could change this not to read write execute to just page execute read if the shell code is not self-modifying and i'm going to talk about this in a minute and then i just use syscall and syscall does exactly what you think it does, right? It, it Well, we showed in the earlier slide, it locks the operating system thread and does a direct memory transfer, memory, memory address transfer, if you like, or CPU instruction pointer transfer, it's a better way of saying that, to that address that we allocated, thus surrendering control from this program directly to the machine code that we put into memory. So it's a little less traditional than your standard shellcode execution here. This one's, this one's using a direct syscall mechanism to execute the shellcode. Kind of fun, all right? Now, there is a little bit of a paradox. So there's a question in the Discord. Why aren't we allocating already with execute? Well, the intention is to allocate the memory just read write just for the copy phase and then to change it to read only. I accidentally left read right here, but I was going to have execute read only for the execute phase. And the reason that you would do that is that virtual memory that is flagged as page execute read is has less of a chance of being flagged by EDRs and defenses, okay? Page execute read write is a lot more obvious. And so I do this as a two-step to hopefully evade EDR, okay? That's the point there. So what happens when you do a Cisco, dot Cisco address, et cetera? This last line in the code, when I'm doing that, that literally is, is is passing instruction pointer control on the CPU directly to the machine code address for the beginning of the shellcode, right? There's an evasion paradox that I've run into in, in researching malware. And that is that, first of all, antivirus, yeah, Binder News just pointed out, and I'll, you know re- re-emphasize this page execute read write is an instant hit for a good edr and av page execute read on the other hand is not and so just to reinforce that material this line in the code right here should have been page execute read i in- inadvertently left it as read write but this protection should read page execute read and the assumption is that the shell code will run forever without any return that's correct and it doesn't matter, right? You're just getting the shellcode into memory. Now, antivirus is going to detect most static shellcode patterns compiled into a binary. This is very, very true of any commodity items like Meterpreter, for example, right? Now, Metasploit encoders are not bad for evasion, but there is a cost to that. When you use a Metasploit MSF Venom encoder, that means that it is putting machine code into the shell code for decoding the encoded machine code that it encoded right it has to have that function because at the decode point is when you know the original machine code is going to be run what that means though is that you have to have the memory segment set to read write and execute because the decode function means it needs to write back to the memory segment that that machine code resides in. And that's going to be a hit for EDR. So if we avoid EDR notice, noticing, well, we can allocate read, write while copying and switch to read, read, execute when executing. But this will break the encoder decode function in Metasploit. And your static analysis will then pick up the shellcode. So this is bad, right? Well, bad for us on the offensive side. So how do we deal with it? It's a catch-22. Well, the easiest way to deal with, there's a number of ways to deal with it, but some of the easiest ways to deal with it is don't put the shellcode into the compiled binary. Why not just use network to fetch it? Put the shellcode out on the network somewhere, right? HTTPS call, fetch it, everything will be fine. Or an alternative, and this is one I've used quite a lot, encrypt the shellcode that you include in the binary. Don't encode it in Metasploit, encrypt it in the source code itself and then use, that, use an encryption key in the code to decrypt it before executing it. And in all honesty, and eventually I'm gonna get busted on this, I know a single byte XOR function is often sufficient for the encrypt decrypt, okay? So how would we do a single byte XOR function in Golang? Well, a very simple form of symmetric encryption is what single byte XOR is. And all we need to do is XOR the shellcode before putting the byte array into the source code, don't use an encoder in Metasploit, and then XOR it again before you execute the shellcode, i.e. decrypt it. Okay? And so this is a very simple XOR function in Golang that does the single byte decryption. And for you guys, I wrote a little Python helper script to make the encryption, the XOR encryption, easy. For you. And so now, if we regenerate our shellcode from MSF Venom, we can use Windows x64 exec cmd equals calc, output the shellcode as raw, stick the standard error in the bit bucket because we're not interested in standard error, and then pipe the output to my XOR Python script. And I wrote into the XOR script a flag. Which allows me to output as Golang, and then I'm XORing it in this case with the single integer byte of 31. And it produces a byte array. Okay, so now I've actually encrypted my shellcode, which I can then include in the source code and decrypt. Method two of shellcode execution creating a thread in the same process. This is a very traditional way of executing shellcode, which you've seen. In C or C++ code all over the place, this is just a Golang translation of the same. So again, look at the source. We're creating a kernel 32 DLL pointer using the new lazy system DLL function, or we could just use new lazy DLL. The the lazy word is just because it defers loading the DLL until a function is accessed in that DLL. That's all that lazy means. Then we then we find the address of RTL move mem and we find the address of create thread because there are no predefined functions in the Windows library for those two. Then we use the predefined virtual alloc, again, to allocate the memory as page read write. We use RTL move mem to copy the memory over, okay, of the shell code. This one is not predefined, so we have to use the syscall mechanism for this one. Then we use virtual protect to change it. This time I did it correctly. Page execute read, not read read write, okay? And then we create a thread in that process with that memory allocation. And we wait forever after this. This is traditional shellcode execution in the same process. Thread being a... Windows, Thread, just like any other Windows process uses, only this Thread is executing the shellcode that we put into memory. So one thing that's really important to understand about Golang DLLs is that they're native DLLs. They're considered unmanaged code, as opposed to .NET, which produces a DLL assembly that's known as managed code. So the DLL assembly is from .NET program, .NET projects is the Microsoft intermediate language, right? And that's always fed into the common language runtime. It's a binary instruction set designed exclusively for the consumption of the common language runtime. It is not native machine code. Golang on the other hand, as I stated earlier, produces native compiled machine code for that machine. Now, using a little bit of C language support and a GCC compiler with Golang, we can actually create a native unmanaged Windows DLL. Now, why would we do this? Well, we would do this so that we can live off the land in an application whitelisting environment. To build a native unmanaged Windows DLL from Golang, you need to import the C language support as part of your import statements, And then you need to create an exported function that starts with a capital letter and includes a comment above it in the form slash slash export func name. And what that does is it directs directs the compilation process to use the GCC compiler and produce a little bit of a stub of C code to support the DLL export that you're actually producing here. Okay, so let's follow this through to its conclusion, all right? Now, of course, I jokingly created a function called engage, and then inside that function in Golang, I put in the statement, Picard says, make it so, okay? And that age is going to be exported. Now, what about the GCC compiler? Now, I've got this to work so far, I have not tried other compilers with min gw 64-bit GCC. And just as a general comment, in all of this presentation and all of the malware that I produce, these days, I'm more likely to stick to 64-bit than anything else because 64-bit machines are so common now that you know there's really no point in, in producing 32-bit code. So your GCC compiler has got to be a 64-bit architecture compiler as well. And for min-GW, when you're using that and installing it, you need to set the architecture to x86 underscore 64 and you need to set the threading model. And this is the most important thing to Win32 instead of POSIX because you want to use the Windows threading model rather than the POSIX threading model. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to use some of these syscalls that we're, that we're messing around with for shellcode delivery for your creating your threads and so forth, right? So when you compile, Using this flag build mode equals C dash shared, okay, what it's going to do is invoke GCC, which is essentially shortened to in, in, in a lot of the blogs out there to CGO right, as part of the process. So the way I would compile a DLL that actually exports a function is use go build dash build mode equals C shared dash O. Go sc.dll in this case, and then the source code go sc.go. In that process, you will see the GCC do the you know pre-compilation process and produce a header file for the linking dependency of what you're exporting. And so you see a go sc.h be produced in in this process, right? The jokes going around on Discord are just killing me, okay? <laughs> anyway, so you will get your DLL. Now, how, if you happen to look, this is a little aside, at the gosc.h file, you will see the exported function that you created there, and you will see it in C++ or C language, right? Yeah, you'll see an extern, void, engage. For those of you that's ever written in C or plus, this will look pretty familiar to you. Now, how do you validate that your DLL export is actually there? One of the easiest ways is to use dump bin, which is part of Microsoft development environment. If you install the Windows APIs, you will get dump bin installed on your development system as well. And then you need to copy it into a path that you can reach it from in your shell because it's usually buried way down in the API directory somewhere and it takes a little while, right? But dump bin slash exports the go sc.dll, for example, right? We'll show the exports. And when you look at the exports, you should see in the program that I had, this engage export will pop up, right? So, how do you live off the land with it? Well, if I wanted to run this thing, run DLL 32 would work against go sc.dll, comma engage, where engage is the DLL export, in other words, the entry point of the code that I wanted to execute from run DLL 32, and I have just lived off the land using using a native compiled DLL from Golang, right? All right, hopefully that is somewhat clear. It's very hard to teach deep concepts in a short presentation, so I hope you'll bear with me in that. Another binary that's very, very useful on the Windows operating system is regsvr32. Regsvr32 is designed to actually register and install native DLLs with, with the operating system. So the fun thing about this utility is that there are four different exports in a DLL that are required for that native DLL to be useful with regsvr32, okay? Well, these four uh, exports are entry point, DLL register server, DLL unregister server, and DLL install. So in one of these methods, it doesn't really matter which, you can implement your shellcode execution method. I personally usually prefer using DLL install. All of them must be exported when you compile the DLL, otherwise it's not function it's not going to function. And the remaining function names that you don't use, they've all got to return a true Boolean value to indicate back to regSVR32 that it has succeeded, right? So the entry point returns true. The register server returns true. Unregister server, sort of optional, but it returns true if you're doing the install part. If you're doing an uninstall, it should return true as well, right? So what I do in the source code, is just go ahead and define these four functions and export them. So we have entry point, we have DLL register server, DLL unregister server. And in the fourth one, DLL install, I'm calling another function in the Go source called main. And that main function is in fact, executing the shellcode. And so that gives us an opportunity to use RegSVR32. On the command line and actually run the shellcode. And I forgot to include an example of that, but I can show that really quick by pulling up my Windows machine. Give me one sec. Hold my beer. Here we come. Live demos, right? So here's a Windows machine with our Go source code on it. And I've gone ahead and compiled this stuff right when I put before I pushed it up to the repo. And in the go sc.go, right, you can see here that we have our machine code as part of the source, I mean, sorry, our our XORed shell code as part of the source. And then in there, we have exported entry point, DLL register server, unregister server, DLL install. And then down in the main routine, I am calling method one syscall XOR buff 3031. And the syscall method is the very first shell code me- mechanism I showed you which allocates memory and then just uses syscall to execute the machine code. So to build this, go build dash build mode equals C get dash output go DLL dot go, sorry, go SC dot DLL or whatever you want to call it, doesn't matter. And then go SC dot go, that should build it. And Mind you, Windows Defender is turned on right now. So proof in the pudding here. So watch Microsoft push a update right now, right? That was not a dare. That was not a dare. Okay, so we go build and it's doing a C compilation. And that might take a while because the fans on my desktop right now are spinning on high because I'm trying to talk, present, run a VM and, and, and a little bit of other stuff going on in the background as well, all right? But anyway, that should compile that, hopefully in real time. (laughs) it's not working in real time, clearly, right? So once we do that, we can then try to run it. Now, the third method I'm going to talk about is a little bit of process injection if if my build doesn't finish here. Oh, the build did finish. Okay, cool. So now with those exports, we can use regsvr32.exe-install and then go sc.dll and it will execute that shellcode and up will pop a calculator, right? Because when you have a calculator, everything is better. Okay. So there you go. Did everybody catch that? Reg SVR32.exe, TAC I, and the DLL, right? For process injection, it's a little bit more complicated with Golang. And well, with any language, to be to be honest. It's implemented by similar kernel 32 calls, okay? The steps involved for process injection is to, one, find a suitable process that you have a security token to access. Open a process handle with open process. Allocate memory in that remote process. Write the shellcode to the allocated memory. And then optionally tighten up the memory protections again with virtual allocation. I meant to have virtual protect EX. I don't know why I kept Alec in there. That's a mistake in the slide. So just sort of ignore that alloc por- portion there. Like X that out. And then create a remote thread with create remote thread EX, okay? Now finding a process to actually inject into can be a little bit of a challenge because you don't want to try to inject into a process that you don't have a security token or basically that you don't own or you don't have permission to inject into. So one thing that I do, I've used from from Mitchell H, he had a nice little bit of source code here with a Go package called GoPS that actually wrapped some of the Windows API calls that we could use for listing processes on the system. So I went ahead and used that and then wrote a loop in Go that just looks to see if the process that I'm looking at in the system matches what we're looking for because this takes a string argument. And then it opens the process and the, the act of opening the process is really me determining whether I have rights to actually use that process, right? And then if the open handle is nothing, it will continue the loop or it'll close the handle and return the process ID of that process. So in that, in that fashion, I can find a process that I own or that I have permission to access to inject into, okay? So just a couple more useful resources to finish it out. I'll show you remote, actually, let's, let's show you remote process injection. We're gonna do a quick code edit here because I do wanna to bring to your attention One little thing that appears to be a bug in CGO, it has nothing to do with my code as near as I can tell. I'm going to change this to method three, inject process. And method three, inject process in this source code is exactly that. It uses my find process function here to go out and locate a process to inject into. And I'm looking for any servicehost.exe process that I own. Okay, and then I allocate memory in that servicehost.exe and inject the shellcode, and then create a remote thread. Exactly the sequence of calls that are that are in here. All right. So let's recompile this now with the same DLL build process, and listen to the music in our head while the Mac catches up with the build. And hopefully that won't take long. Okay. In the meantime, once you're finished with Listening to me today, there's a number of great resources out there. I listed one that I found particularly helpful that has various shellcode methods with Neon ND and Dog. There we go, Neon Dog. I guess Go Shellcode. There is another little little tool that's kind of a nice proof of concept called Go Shellcode from Brimstone, and then there's my repo, which I just called Go Shellcode as well, which contains the code and the slides from this webcast. And so you probably want to go out and find that so that you can check it out. All right. Not only am I going to use Go Build for that, I'm just going to use a straight Go Build as well to build the executable. Mind you, Windows Defender is on in this demo. And so Go Build is, is built. So in here, I now have a DLL and I now have a go shellcode.exe and i'm going to run the go shellcode.exe and i'm going to show you that it does indeed run a calculator okay and so we should be excited by that but most of you have probably noticed that it generated an exception when it ran in fact it the exception is signal arrived during external code execution and that exception as near as i can tell is actually being delivered back from the c language usage, the the underlying C libraries that we're using in this function call. And as I started to research that, I believe that's actually an assembly long jump versus short jump or vice versa issue. So that needs to be further investigated. But as it says up here, the shellcode was injected into servicehost.exe, which is PID 7944. The other thing I want to point out here is what I pointed out earlier and that is the shell code itself is embedded in the source code but just to repeat that shell code was XORed with the integer 31 in this case and before actually calling the shell code execution method notice how I called xor buff comma 31 and that actually performed the decryption before executing the shellcode itself. In other words, that's just a, route, a method to get around the static analysis that might identify the shellcode. And that is the end of the presentation. And so I thank you for being here today. If you would fire some questions away at me, anything that you are looking for to be answered, you can examine the source code yourself at the Go Shell Code repo at Yoda Sixty Six, which I put up there, and the PDF of these slides is also there for you to look at. Super, super big overview talk, lots and lots of stuff there, but I really hope that you get some usefulness out of it. Now, on that topic. If you want a much more expanded discussion of this stuff, come to my class. My Enterprise Attacker Emulation and C2 Implant Development class covers these topics not only from a Golang perspective, but also covers all of these topics from a C Sharp and a Python and many other more advanced topics in the world of malware authorship. So I would highly encourage you to check that out. We are doing that class both live and virtual in Reno, Nevada, June the 15th and 16th, coming up shortly. And yes, there's the sales pitch. Thank you, Cactus. All right, that's all I've got.
0: All right, Josh. Hey, great presentation. Thanks so much. I didn't understand any of that. That's okay. The people who did got a lot out of it and the people who didn't have some places to go and start learning. So all of that came together. Fantastic. A uh, link why, to the class. Yeah, we'll get a link to that class up and then. Yeah. Uh, why do you prefer DLL, DLL install to insert your payload? Why do
1: I... Is, oh, why do I pre- Say that again. Why do I prefer DLL install to do the payload? To, um, insert your to payload. get the payload running? You know, so if you use RegServe32 or you use RunDLL32, the whole point is really to... Have an attempt to bypass application whitelisting because if you're in an environment where they will not allow you to run any arbitrary executable, then I think, well, then you are in a situation you need to use some sort of living off the land utility to actually run your shellcode. And to that point, it is not limited to just regserve32 or runDLL32. If you can find any system tool, that will execute code for a specific DLL export, then you can leverage it.
0: What is the advantage of Go over using native C, C++ or assembly to generate the binary DLL?
1: Okay, so using native Go, using Go versus native C or C++, there really isn't much of a difference there, right? They're both gonna compile down into a PECOF, they're both gonna compile down into native executable for the system, It's really your preference of language authorship. It it just, frankly, just comes down to that. I find the C and C++ uh, header system associated with C and C++ extraordinarily irritating. Go is a cleaner, nicer syntax, and and that's really where I fall out on that.
0: For someone who is new to exploit development and shellcoding, which language would you recommend to start with, Python or Go?
1: So if you're new to exploit development and you're new to, you know, malware authorship in general, it, it honestly it, it honestly doesn't matter a whole lot at the high level which language you use. It comes down to what you are more comfortable with. All of these various languages can perform these various kernel calls into, into kernel 32 or into NTDLL. It's how you express it in the di- in the different language is, is what's happening there with these different languages. So honestly, you can do it with Python. Python's fairly intuitive, and Python might be intuitive for other reasons, for other inform- information security applications that you might be chasing after, like using an API, you know, for example, with things like a GeoIP lookup and those sorts of things that you might do in, in the industry.
0: Any other ideas for LOL bins, LOL bins for use with Golang? Yeah, go go to
1: LOL bins website because it's been well documented there. And that's probably as much as I'm going to say. <laughs>
0: I, I don't know what that is. I was like, am I being trolled? Any book to go dig deeper?
1: So specifically with golang if you're interested in in more golang it, the the best thing you can do is is frankly just learn it online right because because it's google's founded language you're going to find a tremendous amount of support with with golang and so i would i would just use online resources any book that you get frankly is going to be out of date the minute you the author stops writing it i mean that's just the state of the industry
0: we're going to do one more question but before we go Just want to let everyone know, if you would like a backdoors and breaches demo with our team, so we do backdoors and breaches demos with lots of organizations, and this is a free service from Black Hills Information Security because we want people to play it, and we know a lot of people out there have the deck. I think I have a deck right here. We know a lot of people have the deck, and it's just been sitting on their desk, and they don't know what quite to do with it. So if you want to set up a scheduled demo at some point in June, July, or August, then we can come on and show you exactly how to play. We'll play with your team, and so you can invite anybody that you want to, and we'll play with your team so you can figure out how to play. The last question is, and this is a big one, Jeff, are there any takeaways for network defenders and blue teams? How can we defend against these types of exploits other than manual forensics analysis? I always
1: forget to give those takeaways. There was another question there that I want to answer really quick before I get to that one. There's a question there. Why doesn't the for loop for checking processes for create an IOC? From Mulk, I think, I guess that is. Malke. yes, it probably will create an IOC when it tries to access a process that you don't have permission for potentially. And there are more elegant ways to do that than the way I did it. It just takes a whole lot more code and a lot more low-level support. So you are, you're always playing this game in the world of EDR versus sort of AV on how many of the low level functions in kernel 32 or NTTLL you're actually going to want to use. The more of them you use, the more potential for additional IOCs there. And there's a whole topic on unhooking EDRs at the low level to avoid that issue. So that's a more of a detailed discussion. In terms of, so Jason, please repeat the, the question again. I forgot.
0: So, what kind of takeaways for network defenders and blue teams? How do they defend against this without just doing forensic analysis?
1: Yeah, so ne- for defenders and blue teams, it comes back to the the any of the standard stuff that you would look at, especially for living off the land binary defenses. If if run DLL thirty two, for example, is has got network traffic associated with it. That looks like a C two channel, and that's not something that RunDll32 normally does. Like it doesn't normally chat to the network. That might be a giveaway, right? It's like, okay, why why is this RunDll32 process talking to the network? For example, you know, the, the same thing would be for any other living off the land binary that you that you might might use. You know, if if you if you leverage something else on the system, right? It's sort of that comparison of checking what normally would be network traffic for what not would would normally not be network traffic. In the case of in the case of doing sneaky things like injecting into service because service host is often associated with network traffic anyway, then you you may well want to you may well want to look uh, more closely at, at, at some memory size of processes and you know, things that are that are gonna take you a little more time on the defender side, to be honest. I'm trying to think of any other defense comment I can make. Sorry, I'm not good at
0: defense. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of defense with the tabletop exercises, if you want to play backdoors and breaches, I dropped a link inside of the GoToWebinar interface where you can get a free online virtual solution to be able to play backdoors and breaches with your teams through Zoom, through Teams, through anything. Jeff, final words for today.
1: Come learn more. Let's let's keep the discussion going. There. There are lots of different mechanisms for delivering malware. You're going to find more and more that people are using more sophisticated techniques, and we need to be talking about them both in the offensive and the defensive context. And I am I am sorry that I don't talk much about defensive because I do spend a lot of time sleeves up on the offensive research side. But, you know, I, I definitely, especially as things open up post-COVID, I definitely would love to have some more in-person discussions with people on some of these methods and mechanisms and, you know, in, in a more comprehensive comprehensive fashion, so.
0: Yep. And we are so looking forward to meeting you in person. At some point, we've, I think it's been over 100,000 people have attended our webcast over the last since the pandemic started. And so we know that there's a lot of you out there that have met us, but we haven't gotten a chance to meet you yet. And so we can't wait to do that. And hopefully some of you will come to near Reno next month for the Wild West Hacking Fest Way Waywest Conference. If you can't attend in person, you can always attend virtually. And with that, that's it. Thank you so much for being here. If you ever need a pen test webcast, not a webcast, red team or thread hunt or anything, that's it. Job. thank you so don't much. Don't
1: forget, don't forget regular expressions
0: next week. You gotta be there. You're gonna love you're watching, it. Unless you're watching the recording, then that happened a few days ago. All right, everybody. <laughs> we'll see you next time. I'm ending the webinar. Bye.